This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third week in our discussion of Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. Uh, Week one, we went back in time to the 1690s and looked at the historical context uh, and the story that gave inspiration to the modern-day American play. In week two, we set all the history aside and looked at this play from a literary perspective, um, looking at Proctor as a tragic hero, at the internal and external conflicts, and, and I learned what a French scene was. <laughs> this week, we're going to look at this play as a fairly straightforward allegory, uh, an allegory of the part of the Cold War that today we call the Red Scare, uh, the Lavender Scare, and McCarthyism. Gary, I know you've been looking forward to this segment because we are going to get into some of those dirty details of that strange occurrence in American history that most of us, especially those of us who don't live in the United States, we may not even be familiar with anymore. True. Uh, And if you think the intrigue behind the Salem witch trials is complicated, uh, the intrigue of personal, uh, financial, and political that went into the Red Scare is like exponentially and geometrically worse. I mean, uh, America is much larger. The organizations and the people involved are more numerous, and the complicating circumstances are more grave, like nuclear war, for example. Uh, Remember, (laughs) Arthur Miller was born in 1915. That's during World War I, so he lived through World War I, uh, the very hard economic times, the Great Depression, the child, World War II, and now he's living through the Red Scare. That's something that you do not forget. Well, that's so true. My grandmother passed away just a few years ago and was his contemporary. And when she died, after she died, my aunts went into her basement and threw away 
literally hundreds of thousands of egg cartons and butter tubs that she had been storing since the 1920s. She had never thrown away a single restorable or reusable piece of plastic, not because she was financially destitute. I mean, she was decidedly middle class. She'd worked for the telephone company and my grandfather had a job at a TV company, but those Depression-era habits of conservation never left, not even after 80 years. Absolutely. That entire generation's worldview is colored and scarred by the extreme hardships of the Depression, as well as those that uh, were brought on by World War II. Those two events are going to shape Miller's worldview. Uh, but there's one more very important personal characteristic we can't overlook. Miller is Jewish. And although the United States is a much safer place to be Jewish for f- families, much more so than Europe, uh, America is not free of anti-Semitism. And Miller grows up understanding and feeling the oppression of it. Well, Miller's breakout play, All My Sons, we mentioned that in episode one, came out, and think about the year, 1947. That's right after the end of World War II. And if interpreted a certain way, probably the proper way <laughs> could be viewed <laughs> Would that be your way? as being critical of capitalism and the pursuit of wealth as a life goal. Well, these were moral perspectives that he had acquired through these life experiences. I mean, Miller was critical of some of the changes that were coming out of this era and the values that he was a part of. He's young, he's educated, he's exploring his own mind and the ideas about how the social contract between human beings living together should be applied. Miller was doing all the natural sort of soul searching that younger adults they're supposed to do, hopefully to make this place better. And he arrived at, you know, some of the same conclusions that lots of other people of his generation were arriving at. Gary, there's that famous Winston Churchill quote. Do you you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. Uh, The quote I think that you're thinking of is, if a man is not a socialist by the time he's 20, he has no heart. If he's not a conservative by the time he is 40, he has no brain. (laughs) That is it. And according to that quote, you know, he's in his brainless phase. Uh, Not really, no disrespect. (laughs) All right, Chrissy, just so we don't get a correction tweet on Twitter, this quote is actually incorrectly uh, attributed to Churchill. Nobody knows who really said that. And I've heard it attributed to many people. Uh, One, the historian Francois Guizot. Others think it started with Victor Hugo. Some even attribute it to King Oscar II of Sweden. Ooh. Good grief. How ironic that a quote about sharing values is shared by so many different people. Oh, my. Well, uh, your point is lots of people start out with lots of idealism. It's typical of young people, especially good young people. And socialism for many, and I don't want to take a political side here, is considered idealistic. At least that's the point the quote is making. And Except at this time, America is getting neck deep into another war. Um, At least that's what we've come to call the standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union. The Cold War took on some of the vestiges of World War II. Uh, The idea of the good versus evil narrative uh, was in the minds of everyone. Stalin 
who one year before had been our ally, was feared as being something of the next Hitler or beyond. He was the next personification of evil and death. And, of course, we know from history the, um, the atrocities he committed. If you just look at the numbers, were far greater than even Hitler's damage was able to do before he was stopped. You know, over 22 million were resettled in the gulags or in remote frozen settlements, and millions were starved, and millions were hunted down and slaughtered for political reasons. And, um, of course, no one knows for sure, but the documentation identifies this figure as upward of 12 million people. Stalin was aggressive. He had taken over countries in Eastern Europe as well as Central Asia. He had stripped Russians of their religion and made institutionalized atheism the state religion. And he had a nuclear weapon. Uh, He was every bit ruthless and threatening to America in the 1950s, as the devil was to the Puritans in the 1690s. Uh, America after World War II was immediately filled with fear, and we were afraid of a war. We were afraid of Stalin. We were afraid of nuclear weapons. And all these things are associated with communism, which is uh, the form of government practice in the Soviet Union. Well, I remember my dad talking about that. He told me that when he was a kid, they had nuclear war drills in school, and they would have to hide under their desks. Can you imagine how you would feel as a child thinking that, is this desk going to stop the A-bomb? Well, if you want to do a fun search, get oh, on YouTube no. and look up the civil defense war drills. You'll see them. Oh, are they awful? The, the government produced little short movies showing children that in the case of a nuclear bomb going off. This how, is what you do. How to get under your desk. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I want to highlight the word afraid. and This is going to translate and impose an ideological fear. Um, America is afraid of communism. Uh, to what degree we should have been is really not the point uh, that I'm going to debate. And it's not even relevant to the crucible. But what we do need to understand is that America is afraid. We're afraid of Stalin and the aggression of the Soviet Union. And this means we're also afraid of communism and we're afraid of atheism. And so, la-di-da, enters our dear friend, stage left. <laughs> get it? Left? He's a leftist? He yeah. came <laughs> Arthur Miller. Did you get it that I didn't laugh? Uh, It's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, and by the way, Miller is an atheist. So, it's not that Miller is pro-Stalin, but he, like many other liberals, is investigating the ideas of communism, the philosophy, a liberal alternative perspective. Well, that's probably fair. Well, the parallel is already obvious. It's the power innate in fear and how it changes behavior. Because just as the Puritans were afraid of the forest, which to them represents death, so too are Americans afraid of the Soviet Union because for them it represents death. And just as death came with the name of witch and brought with it this current of religion, the new death has its own name, and its name is communism. And so we get, we get this religious entanglement, Christianity versus atheism. And I feel like I want to bring up a point right here that communism and the Soviet Union collapses in the early 1990s. We are already one generation past the death of the Soviet Union. 
It's becoming uh, an issue that Americans are increasingly out of touch with and have no memory of. So right. So it makes people this. as under you can't understand the scare of the 50s the same way we can't understand the fear of the 1690s. It's just something that happened in the past. Exactly. And, and although there are plenty who are going to argue otherwise, um, I think Miller wants to reduce these two historical events to an observation. For him, quite personal, we'll see that to, to highlight how people react and are manipulated by their fears, legitimate fears, how our own fears leave us vulnerable to um, malevolent people doing malevolent things in the name of public safety. And what he wants to point out is that horrible people will find a way to use a public crisis to grab power, uh, power that they're not entitled to, uh, to, uh, to oppress people they are politically opposed to. Well, there's one difference between the two events, though, and I know this is on a lot of people's minds. They're going to say, but the forest didn't really kill people, and witches may or may not have been real in Salem, but weren't Russians actually real, and wasn't there really a Cold War? (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, and uh, so... Uh, but don't discount the threats in the new world. Uh, there were a lot of things to be afraid of in the new world, and the forest was the part you couldn't see. Also, I'm not ready to discount the idea that there weren't really witches in the new world, and I mean that in this in this light. I think there's tremendous amount of documentation to support that some of those Puritan settlers were dabbling in the occult in various ways. Uh, so it's not that there weren't real threats. There almost always are in hysteria um, in both cases. So it's fair to say that people are not being unreasonable to be afraid of the circumstances of the world. What Miller was pointing out through the allegory uh, were the power grabs occurring during the 1950s because malevolent people had seized an opportunity uh, to access power that, that was generally unavailable to them. And the people in Salem didn't question the legitimacy of the power grab until it was too late and the hysteria caused the deaths of innocent people. And the hysteria led to an, an overreaction of the threat at hand. Well, overreaction. It wouldn't be American to not overreact. We're so good at that. If you claim to be hungry, you're not going to order just a Coke. You're going to order a big gulp with over a liter of liquid in it. If you're hungry, you're not going to just order a burger. You're going to go to McDonald's and order the grande, whatever, whatever, with three patties. So, you know, it's it's in our national ethos. <laughs> I don't know that you can equate that to the Red Scare overreaction. Maybe not. Anyway, well... Uh, but the root of evil isn't even found in a hysteria. The evil I found in the backstory um, is the agitators that agitated the fears in Salem. What did Putman want that he was willing to kill for? What did Abigail want that she was willing to kill for? There's no indication at all that Putnam or Abigail were ever afraid of witches. They weren't afraid of witches at all. They knew the others were afraid. Uh, and in the same way, there are motives to the backstory to the American story of the 1950s. Uh, there are many in leadership, and this will come as no surprise to any student of Machiavelli. There are many that are malevolent people who will take what is a real fear and use it to manipulate people's behavior in a direction that is going to serve their interests. And we discussed um, last week that for uh, a hysteria to break out, You have to have anxiety. You have to have a fear, but you also have to have a manipulative rat to push the story forward. And America had more than one. Uh, Some were truly malevolent. Others were just likely naive. And um, here's a little more backstory. 
1947, uh, remember that Miller's breakout year was his first play. President Truman set up what was called the Federal Employee Loyalty Program. The purpose of the program was to investigate the three million federal workers to make sure they were not selling um, secret information to the Soviets. Now, ultimately, this program didn't actually fire very many people, like a little over 200 for questionable loyalty, although I will say maybe 3,000 or more quit under protest. But this started something that unfortunately has resurfaced in this country again, and not just in America, but in a lot of places around the world. You could be in trouble, not for anything you did, but for having wrong beliefs. Sounds like social media to me. (laughs) Great example. Hmm. Um, Well, in 1947, right after World War II, people were afraid enough to surrender some of their First Amendment rights, the rights of free speech and some other things. And they did it willingly because if there was anything we knew that we didn't want, we didn't want Stalin or later Khrushchev to get the nuclear bomb and blow us up. We didn't want to go to the gulag or to the re-education camp. I mean, that much everyone was agreeing on. Um, It was a risk that no one was willing to take. And so... Uh, malevolent people found the leverage they needed to manipulate the rules to their advantage. And a committee called the House Un-American Activities Committee had already been formed during World War II, and it was formed with a plan of rooting out the Nazi threat. Well, in 1947, the Nazi threat's over, but the committee was still around, and this same committee started to flex its muscles not against Nazis, but against our new enemy, the Soviets. And It had evolved way beyond its original purpose, and now it was making headlines because it was targeting, among other industries, the film industry for scrutiny, looking for movies that might be spreading communism. Um, Thought police simply doing a service for public safety. Safety? If people hate (laughs) evil thoughts, they might act on those evil thoughts and commit atrocities that could result in nuclear war. Well, there's the slippery slope, and of course... To me, even the name of that committee sounds un-American. Isn't it un-American to call something un-American? We're supposed to be a melting pot. (laughs) Well, that's historically debatable about whether or not this is a melting pot. We will not go down that road. But we're playing around with the meaning of words. Um, Un-American is a word that has no concrete meaning. That's That's the strength of it. So it can mean whatever you want it to mean, just like being a witch. One of the first lines of the third act of the play, I really love this line. Martha Corey has been dragged into the court, and they ask her if she's a witch. And she basically answers, no, I'm not a witch. I don't even know what a witch is. And then, with perfect circular reasoning, the judge says, well, then how do you know you're not one? (laughs) If we're going to apply that logic, there's a whole bunch of things I might be that I don't know. I know. And that is exactly how all these hearings went. And that's why they're maddening, these same twisted lines of reasoning. And the real Abigail of the story, um, however, emerges in February of 1950 when Senator Joseph McCarthy makes a stunning speech in West Virginia claiming that he knows that there are no less 
than 200 active communists working in the State Department as he waves his piece of paper in front of the media, which, by the way, didn't have any names on it. But Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> notice how the meaning of the words is being manipulated. Uh, there's an implica- implication here that it, if you are a communist, then that means you are in sympathy with the Soviets. And if you have sympathy with the Soviets, that means you are a spy and you are selling secrets designed to destroy the United States. I mean, it's quite a leap of logic and not... Far from what we see going on in Act 3 of the Crucible. So uh, being a communist was also an invisible crime. Yikes. Now, uh, McCarthy, like Abigail, was ambitious and seemed all-powerful. No one ever put the spotlight on him. He was a very powerful and convincing speaker, and he played on people's fears, and he relished the spotlight, just like Abigail He coveted uh, the fame he got from this, and his power, just like we see with Abigail, increased to the point where he seemed untouchable. Nobody could figure out why we were believing this person. So uh, if he came after you, you were sunk. And to quote Frederick Douglass here, to be accused was to be convicted, and to be convicted was to be punished. The one always following the other with immutable certainty to escape punishment was to escape accusation. How awful that he's referencing a quote to slavery, and it can be applied to Senator McCarthy. <laughs> well, herein lies the beauty of literature, I uh-huh. want to point out, that they, they weave all these things together. Uh, thousands of civil servants were accused, and uh, I want to point out uh, that there were hundreds of homosexuals who were somewhat arbitrarily targeted. And uh, this is what has been termed the lavender scare, which, although it happened at the same time, with the same players, was actually not the same thing. Uh, The logic was slightly different, but it was no less non-sequitur. There had been an incident in the State Department where a gentleman was blackmailed by the Soviets to give them secrets in exchange for keeping it secret that he was a homosexual. And At this time, it was um, illegal to be a homosexual and work for the government, but uh, the logic became that the, all homosexuals could be blackmailed into giving the Soviets secrets which could destroy America. So, in essence, to be homosexual is to be the same thing as a communist spy by that logic. Oh, my gosh. There's so many awful and ridiculous assumptions in that kind of logic from our present moment. And you look at that, and I hear you say that. It doesn't seem possible that any reasonable or thinking person would track with that. But they do. (laughs) And it happens. And just like Abigail, McCarthy seemed to have no moral compass at all. He uh, bullied people mercilessly. He got over 7,000 people fired from their jobs and even got some people killed. Uh, People in front of the committee were made to name names. Does that sound familiar? Yes. The committee wanted names of other communist operatives. And again, this is where Miller ran into trouble because when he was in front of the House on American Activities Committee, he refused to give names. Well, before we talk about that, which uh, actually is interesting, isn't it important to make the comparison? Because I think it makes sense to know that although it might have been illegal to not be a Christian in Puritan New England, it's not a crime. Or now, has it ever been a crime, even if you were a communist in the United States? Well, there is that freedom of speech. <laughs> 
So McCarthy had to make a bigger connection than that, and, and he had a little help. Uh, because the truth was, the Russians were trying to infiltrate our government. They did want our secrets. They were aggressively taking over other countries around the world, and we were specifically worried about Southeast Asia. Uh, but they had started insurrections among the local people. I mean, look at Cuba. Look at Nicaragua and uh, other places of, arre- of unrest in South America. The Cold War was not a fictitious event. I mean, it was volatile and violent at many points. And uh, once there was a, a man named Alger Hiss in 1948, he was accused of having spied for the Soviet Union. And truth be told, the uh, historical record has proven that he was indeed guilty. So there were some that did exactly this. That's right. That's all you need is a few to support the fear. Uh, there was another case, and that was a very public case, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Um, Julius Rosenberg, for sure, uh, and well, let me say this, the declassified records have since somewhat exonerated his, lo- his wife, but Julius, along with a, uh, a German scientist named Klaus Fuchs, were passing along scientific secrets to the Soviets that eventually let the Soviets uh, create the, their first atomic bomb in September of 1949. So, was it true that there were spies infiltrated in the State Department? No doubt. Uh, were people calling each other spies just to get rid of them, Salem style? Um, yes. <laughs> again, no doubt. Uh, you can imagine the, the kind of impact the discovery of an actual spy ring had on the American psyche. Uh, these three, by the way, were tried. They were found guilty and they were sentenced to death. And the sentence of the Rosenbergs was carried out in June of 1953, by the way. And they are the only people to be convicted and ex- executed during the Red Scare. Well... June of 1953, that's an unfortunate date because the crucible opened six months before that. So right in the middle of this trial in January of 1953. Wow, that is amazing. And it explained, you know, that could have uh, affected the terrible box office. It could. (laughs) Well, and uh, Miller had attended a communist conference. He had attended the Waldorf conference. In 1949, maybe not so politically savvy. If he no. clearly he didn't care about that, <laughs> right? And there were several Americans that, that did things like that. So uh, the crucible opened in January of 1953, and uh, the response to it was direct and harsh. It it tanked. E. G. Marshall, a very famous actor, he played Reverend Hale. Well, he was blacklisted. Um, E.G. Marshall does one of my favorite videos for Thomas Jefferson's Monticello home in the 1970s. So, um, uh, so, so he was blacklisted. So was Beatrice Strait, who played Elizabeth Proctor, um, although she cleared herself by paying $500. 500 but bucks solves a lot of problems. <laughs> it, it declares you not a communist. Okay? Uh, Madeline Sherwood, who played Abigail, was listed as a communist. And let me point out that McCarthy, like Abigail never produced concrete evidence to support his claims, and he never uncovered any communist plot or spy ring. So it's like they were a prophecy that were literally fulfilling their own prophecy that they had made in the play. Oh, now it's getting complicated. (laughs) So, uh, well, for sure. And and going back to Salem for a moment, um, when I watched the play, one of the things I'm most struck by is the immaturity of the legal system. It was very underdeveloped, uh, and that contributed a lot to what happened, most important of which is accepting child testimony uh, against adults, which would never fly in a modern court. And uh, There was almost no hint of due process of law, which is guaranteed today. And where were the defense attorneys? 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in modern times, the burden of proof of guilt is the responsibility of the court. No one has to prove their innocence. Um, so in these cases, both in Salem and in front of the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee, the process is reversed. I guess in a committee, you don't have to have all those things that you're guaranteed in a court of law. True. Uh, but uh, fear is clearly not the sole driving force. In Act 3, when Proctor and uh, Mary Warren challenged the truthfulness of the girl's testimony, the judge is terrified that he's issued all of these death warrants. And we see... That courtroom hysteria is driven by things like the idea of sunken costs. That's an economic term. Um, attribution theory, belief, perseverance, catharsis, um, confirmation bias, counterfactual thinking, um, some de-individuation. One of my favorites, fundamental attribution error, and uh, also illusory correlations. I mean, it's a social psychologist field trip. <laughs> Of information, and um, I look forward to unpacking all that next week when we look at Act Four and discuss Act Four with this kind of a social psychology angle in mind. Well, I look forward to that too because that was just a vocabulary list to me. <laughs> yeah, well, those are real terms that really get used and are very effective. <laughs> but even here in Act Three, as we get into the details of how Miller wrote this trial scene, it's interesting to think about Miller being a very accomplished social psychologist as yes. he's highlighting. And how many times have we talked about great authors being great amateur psychologists? Yeah, right? well, he's identifying the nonsense and portraying what McCarthy is doing as the utter foolishness that he saw it. And so if you weren't understanding it in real time for being stupid, when you put it in the context of Abigail and the play, the foolishness is highlighted. I do want to say, though, because we're jumping into Act 3, and before we do that, we aren't reading or even discussing Act 2, Scene 2. This is the scene where actor or actor where Abigail and Proctor meet in the woods. And we're skipping it because most of the time it's not performed. It's not even in the textbook we use at my school. But the one thing that it does add to the text, and it might be worth noting, uh, the time sequence. Proctor notes that his wife had been in jail by this point for 36 days. And in the scene that, you know, is skipped, Proctor exposes to Abigail what he's planning to do. He says, I'm going to, you know, tell what happened. Abigail also says, well, she's glad Elizabeth is going to die. And she doesn't think that Proctor has the nerve to reveal the affair. So all that happens in this part that most people skip because you don't actually need it to follow the logic of the whole story. So getting into the court scene, Act 3, it takes place in the meeting house in Salem. And again, this is the big set change. You know, we've already had a lot of that. But here we're going to look under a magnifying glass, really, what mass hysteria looks like. And this scene, I mean, I can barely watch it. It's painful. The other day, I was at the gym. I was listening to this play on my headphones while I was working out, trying to kind of go over some of the stuff before we talked about it. And I almost turned it off. I just got so angry I couldn't work out. I could barely stand to listen to this dialogue. And, of course, it starts with Martha Corey. We don't see her. Giles' wife has been tried off stage, And all we can do is hear what they're talking about. And it's very creepy. Yeah. Well, I was struck in this section by the idea of the value of creating a boogeyman 
that can't clearly be defined. It's such a powerful tool. In fact, um, it's obvious the accusers uh, do not want the boogeyman defined. If you're the accuser, you can morph and change the boogeyman anytime you need to. Uh, and it has the effect of keeping your enemies on the defensive. And so you keep changing what the threat is. And what Abigail did was exactly what all abusers do, constantly rearranging and defining reality for other people. First, um, it's the uh, specters that visit her. Then she stabs herself. Eventually, there's an invisible bird flying around the courtroom. Uh, it has a deadly effect. And there's also Putnam's skullduggery. Skullduggery. That, I like that word. <laughs> it's going on quietly in the background while everyone else is distracted with chaos. And uh, his powers of suggestion and accusation almost go unnoticed. Also, his motivations. Well, there's so much irony here, dramatic irony, because the audience can see it. And we're reminded that Thomas Putnam is the man behind all this. It's his daughter that's crying witch. And there are those financial gains that he's going to make. We're also introduced to the idea right from our first discussion, and this is going to be a show and tell, speaking of show and tells, of what a logical fallacy is could come out of a textbook. <laughs> ah, you have mentioned that a lot, and I love logical fallacies. Uh, so just as a refresher, tell us what a logical fallacy is. Well, a logical fallacy is when the logic of any given argument doesn't make sense. Arguments are made up of what we call premises and conclusions. And of course, this is a short and dirty explanation. But the idea is the idea of the premise must be true. So I'm going to make a true statement and then another true statement. And one true statement plus another true statement must equal my conclusion. So when someone says something that sounds like it makes sense, but if you think about it, those things don't add up, or one of them isn't actually true, you might have been fooled by a logical fallacy. <laughs> oh, we could go on with that. Oh, for there are dozens and dozens of little tricks and people studying for years trying to figure out how did you pass that off? And of course, there's some big obvious ones, like the one we already talked about uh, in this case. Martha says, I don't know what a witch is. An author says, well, how do you know that you're not one? Well, she's silenced and put on the defensive and made to think, oh, yeah, maybe I am. But the logic is faulty. He didn't offer any proof that she was a witch. He, his conclusion just accused her in a slightly different way. It was a circle. And this is the kind of garbage that we see in every single one of these accusations. I could go on and on. Well, I'd like to point out, this is what I meant by morphing the boogeyman. You can make him change. Later on, Proctor's trying to explain that all three of the wives of accused had nearly perfect reputations in the community. And then Paris says, well, Cain was an upright man until he murdered Abel. That's from the Bible, so it must be true. Everyone is an upright person until they murder but comparing Cain in the Bible to Elizabeth Proctor, that's a false analogy because those two things aren't the same and they can't be compared. Cain admitted to killing Abel. Elizabeth didn't kill anyone. In fact, no one's dead. I'll show you a third one, uh, but I won't go into all of them because they're just too many. But I want to make the idea. Later on, Danforth is bearing down on Mary Warren over why she can't faint on command. And he says, 
either faint on command because it was pretense or there are no spirits attacking you and that's why you can't faint. Well, that's what we call an either or fallacy, meaning I'm going to reduce all the world to two options. And if one option isn't true, then that means the other one is true. And of course, everyone watching the play can easily see, no, there's the third option. She can't faint because she's freaked out or she's not hysterical like she was before. So on and on, we can go on one continuous display of a logical fallacy after another. There's a fantastic English teacher out of Kentucky named Leticia Hughes. If you're into this sort of thing, she has it posted on Google. You can just Google her name, Illogical Fallacies, and she goes through all of them in their entirety. And it's a great activity to go through. But anyway, you come down to the climax of the entire play. Abigail is getting ready to get busted for adultery. The jig is about to be up and she throws out the ultimate red herring. Now, a red herring is the term when you are going to get in trouble. And then all of a sudden you change the subject because you want the attention to be off you and onto something else totally unrelated. And so this is what she does. She's getting ready to get in trouble. And all of a sudden, it's just magical. She sees a spirit bird. A spirit bird. (laughs) Because Mary Warren has sent her spirit to murder them right then and there. With a bird? With with her spirit bird. It's not even a real bird. So Mary Warren, when she sees what's happening, immediately turns on Proctor, accuses him of being what she calls the devil's man. And then our antagonist has won. That climax, that moment where Proctor makes the decision from which he cannot return, has come and gone. He confessed, and it's gotten him nothing, and he's going to be thrown into prison. Proctor will go to jail. Hale, with the rest of the watching audience, recognizes this is a fraud. But Abigail rules the day. And the audience is absolutely outraged. And we're sitting back and wondering, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. She's the victor. And not only that, she's smug about it. And the course of the trial, they ask her some questions and she refuses to answer them. How dare they question her? Gary, that's my take on it. What's yours? How can you make the final comparisons between what Abigail did here and how Arthur Miller is trying to make that about Joseph McCarthy and what he did in the 1950s. Well, they were they were certainly obvious to Arthur Miller, and and, and of course they work. And from the vantage point of history, we um, are not blinded by fear or hysteria. I mean, it's obvious who's evil and who is stupid and who's a hero uh, in the play. But uh, in October 1947, when the House Un-American Activities Committee convened a hearing in Washington, D.C., 41 screenwriters, directors, and producers were subpoenaed, and most responded positively to the committee's central question, which is, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Uh, And those who confessed membership were offered the opportunity to name fellow travelers. That's what they called them, fellow travelers. Thereby regaining good standing with the committee and, uh, by extension, the, um, the American film industry. And Ten studio executives were called as witnesses and were told to give names. They refused, and today they're still called the Hollywood Ten. They were fined and sentenced up to a year in federal prison, and that was just the beginning. Uh, By the time 
Arthur Miller was called in 1956 before the committee. So he was actually called before the same committee yes. after the play. Yes. Uh, there have been nine years of this hysterical persecution going on. Um, Arthur had a close friend, Elia Kazan, who did not have the courage to stand up the committee. And he named many names uh, when he appeared at the House Un-American Activities Committee prior to Miller's appearance. And their friendship was forever severed by this uh, betrayal. And it wasn't long after uh, Kazan's appearance before the committee that Miller was brought in. And after his appearance, he applied for a passport to go to Belgium for the opening of the Crucible. And he was denied his American passport, basically meaning his citizenship was taken away. Again, more irony. Yeah. <laughs> this was a way for the government to somehow officially declare Miller un-American. That word again. And today, no one sees the world quite like that. And we look back horrified. But then again, none of us are wound up in a hysteria over communism at the moment. It's not a threat at all now. Well, back to the pesky arrogance of the present. Mm. <laughs> next week, we will finish Act 4. And, but I want to start, before we talk about Next 4, I want to talk about Marilyn Monroe. I know she has nothing to do with The Crucible, but she is interesting, and she did marry Arthur Miller. <laughs> well, I know you're excited about that tangent. Um, and, and we'll finish with Miller's final thoughts on this play. Um, this week, we focused on the direct allegorical link to the American politics of the 1950s, but I want to end with more of Miller's words, and uh, this is an excerpt from the New Yorker magazine written in 1996. Miller is commenting on when he sees the crucible being performed. Uh, Miller said in his famous editorial, he said this, it's only a slight exaggeration to say that, especially in Latin America, the crucible starts getting produced whenever a political coup appears imminent or a dictatorial regime has just been overthrown. From Argentina to Chile to Greece, Czechoslovakia, China, and a dozen other places, the play seems to represent the same primeval structure of human sacrifice to the furies of fanaticism and paranoia that goes on repeating itself forever as though embedded in the brain of social man. What an observation. I know. I like that line. The furies embedded in the brain of social man. Yes. I guess it's really true. The furies of fanaticism. There's some great alliteration for you. And next week we'll pick up uh, here uh, as we end this amazingly popular American play. Thank you for listening this week. Don't forget to check out our social media. Uh, check us out on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, look at our How to Love It podcast page. And thank you for those of you who take the time to comment and review our work and email us or contact us. We love hearing from all of you. And uh, special thanks to Ruth, who gave us an amazing review on LinkedIn. And um, it's when we hear from all of you that we're reminded that although there are Abigails in this world, we're so very grateful. It's also full of kindness. So true. Much love to everyone out there and peace out. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.